At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So I think the difference between, say, doing a full range of motion and doing length and partials out of 100 may only be between three and eight points or thereabouts, right? Maybe even a bit less. So if you look at the effect sizes in the um, meta-analysis, for example, the percentage differences between the approaches seem to roughly correspond to that. So I think that's a good estimate to give. And the thing with that is in any individual, if they change from full range of motion to length and partials, that's too small of a difference to be able to tell. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, and today I have the great Milo Wolf with me. He's uh, come to kind of challenge the lifting orthodoxy, so um, I'll let him introduce himself because um, I've really enjoyed listening to him lately, and it's really kind of shaken up the way I think a lot of people are looking at lifting, but um, like I said, I don't want to give him too much of an intro. I'll let him explain. So uh, go ahead, dude. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so as you introduced me, I guess I'm challenging some of the orthodoxy at the moment. Um, specifically, I'm doing my PhD in sports science, looking at the effects of range of motion during lifting on hypertrophy. Um, so traditionally, as you've said, the orthodoxy has been that a full range of motion is always best. But I think that my PhD was kind of looking at that and has maybe found some things that weren't expected, at least when I started it. You know, when I started it, I thought that a full range of motion was definitely going to be best. But it turns out it may not be best for all things all mm -hmm. the time. Nice. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's really, really interesting because, um, you know, as we've kind of said, the standard orthodoxy is you should always go full range of motion. But um, I, I think people might get this a little bit twisted because I think 
from what I recall, your research is mostly in like more of the stretched um, position rather than like what people people do the easier um, part whenever they do partials. But your research is mostly in like the more difficult. Correct. Yeah. So it really depends where you perform your reps in, right? So when you do a full range of motion, you get both a full contraction or a peak contraction and a full stretch. So you kind of get both ends of the spectrum, right? Um, but when you perform partial repetition, you can do partials, like the relatively easier ones that a lot of people do in the gym because they don't really think about it, is the top part or the peak contraction bit, which typically is also the easier part of lift, right? Like for pressing, for example, for barbell pressing, typically the top part is the easiest. And that's coincidentally, let's say, also the part that they do. Um, however, there is research looking at both shortened or peak contraction partial reps and also the bottom partial reps. So the bottom partial reps, we can think of as training longer muscle lengths. So we can call them kind of lengthened partials because they train your muscles at more lengthened ranges. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not that much data yet on lengthened partials versus four range of motion. So it's kind of a new interesting area. But the data we have so far is fairly compelling in its favor for hypertrophy. And so it's kind of a new thing where um, I think for a long time, it took a while for people to get used to the idea that full range of motion was best for hypertrophy, right? Mm -hmm. like it's kind of a big pendulum swing within the evidence-based or fitness community from uh, not really thinking about range of motion to actually saying, well, the evidence we have says full range of motion is best. So all of a sudden, everyone was super aware of range of motion and was super aware of the fact that full range of motion was best. And now that the pendulum is maybe swinging a little bit the other way in terms of the research we have, I think it's taking a lot of people a lot of time to get used to the idea or they're a bit reluctant to even acknowledge the evidence for the time being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one of the uh, panels I saw you on recently, I believe this was really uploaded like within the last week or so as of when we're recording this, uh, you were on with Mike Isratel and, you know, his thing is uh, real big on Team Full Rom, but, um, you know, obviously he's a very, very um, intellectually honest person. So he's got, you know, he's open to new interpretations of the data. So um, I, I guess let's back up real quick. Um, you've only been training. I was listening to a podcast earlier with you today. Um, I, I think at this point now, like nine years, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Eight or nine years, yeah, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, um, what, um, what kind of got you into resistance training, and then what got you interested into doing this research? Because this is like a kind of a third rail for a lot of like the evidence based community. Yeah, for sure. So, what got me into lifting is I stopped playing football or soccer, however you want to call it, <laughs> um, when I was thirteen or fourteen, and I'd been doing some kind of like push ups in my room since I was quite young, like maybe mm -hmm. since I was eight years old or something. I don't know. For some reason, being muscular and being strong always appealed to me, I guess. Like, I think to most boys in their teenage yeah. or adolescent years. Um, and so I'd always done it kind of in secret because, you know, you don't want to have, you don't want your parents to know that, oh, you know, you're doing this, uh, you're doing these push-ups, et cetera, especially if your family isn't like athletically inclined, let's say. Um, and so I was doing it in secret a little bit, but then I stopped football and wanted to find something else. And I've been doing this stuff in secret. And I was like, ah, I'm, I'm going to try going to the gym here. And I just signed up for a gym. Uh, I couldn't actually sign up without my mom signing up as well. So she signed up as well. Never went. I went by myself. Um, but yeah, I got started. And it's funny when you're young, like I remember now when I was younger, you get a lot of random people come up to you and giving you advice just because you're like fresh faced and young and green looking, you know? Sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I did a lot of dumb shit, uh, because a lot of people told me to do a lot of dumb shit. Um, but fairly quickly, actually, I kind of delved into some of the evidence around it. So I started following, for example, Greg Knuckles at the time, uh, or strength theory at the time it was called. Uh, 
Um, and so by age maybe like 16, so a couple of years later, I was getting quite interested in the science behind lifting. Now, I didn't understand much of it. Like I thought I did. I didn't actually understand much of it. So I would read these articles and be like, oh, that's, this is what's going on. Or like I would not get half the article and just kind of read the conclusions. But I was getting interested in at least using science as a tool to inform my training. And so when I was about 17 and lifting had become like my main hobby, maybe mm -hmm. I thought, well, I was, I was okay at a few things. I was okay at like, uh, maths, history, some science and stuff, languages as well. Um, but the only thing that really was that interesting to me was lifting and kind of the science behind it. And so I applied for an undergrad at Loughborough university. Uh, it's just a generally very good university for sports science. Um, I did an undergrad there. And then afterwards, I was kind of disillusioned with undergraduate or postgraduate degrees for sports science when it comes to very specific fields, right? Mm -hmm. So an undergraduate degree in sports science does a really good job of equipping you with the knowledge covering a wide array of bases, like basic physiology, basic biomechanics, basic biochemistry and stuff like that. But it doesn't really teach you that much about the ins and outs of a specific thing, right? It just mm -hmm. gives you a very broad overview of thing. And because... You know, sports science, there's so many different sports. There's a lot of endurance sports. There's a lot of team sports. There's a lot of power sports. My thinking was, I'm going to do this degree. I'm going to learn all about lifting. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to get jacked. Woo. Uh, instead, I got sort of just a general fundamentals course. And so I was finishing my undergrad and I thought, ah, I could go for a master's now, but I just don't want it to be more of the same. I want to actually learn some stuff about lifting here because that's ultimately what my passion was about from day one, aka when I was like 14. Um, and so I spoke to some people and eventually applied for a PhD program down here in Southampton, UK. Applied for it. Uh, I The reason I started looking at range of motion is actually because I had been working with slash for Renaissance periodization and Mike Isotel at the time. Um, in 2019, I'd gone to a seminar with Mike Isotel and Revive Strong at the time, actually, um, in London, and I met them, and I kind of started working for them a little bit. And I've gotten interested in range of motion. So for like a year or two, I was using exclusively for range of motion in my training because that was what the evidence said at the time. But I kind of saw how it was an interesting area of evidence. And in 2020, actually, right before I applied for a PhD, a systematic review by Brad Schoenfeld had been published on range of motion. And that only showed that there were six studies out there on range of motion, which isn't a lot. And that some of the studies were a bit conflicting. And so I thought, hmm, well... If I'm going to apply for a PhD, this is something I've been interested in because of RP, because of working for Mike Israel, because of my own training um, for a while. And also, it just happens to be an area of evidence that doesn't have that much research. Let me go in and try and contribute some stuff here, even though my bias going into it was, hey, for range of motion is best for hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty a pretty open and shut case. Uh, but it turns out that upon starting my PhD, I kind of had this turning point after like a year, a year and a half when I actually finished an analysis, for example, I was like, uh, maybe actually full range of motion isn't best. And then it kind of went on from there and more evidence was released. And I kind of gradually saw a shift in my beliefs. Um, and yeah, they can definitely still be shifted. Like if now two more studies come out that actually full range of motion is better than like partials, I'm like, actually, you're probably fine either way. Like it's pretty equivalent. Um, but so far it's definitely shifted my mind a little bit. Okay. So um, I, I guess on that topic of length and partials then, um, is it because you're already in, because of the effects of um, stretch-mediated hypertrophy? So like, let's say you're in a squat and you're the whole way down and you only go like a quarter of the way up. Um, 
from what I understand, the most stimulative point is when you're in that fully stretched position. Um, is it because of the effects of that, or is it because like the overall? I don't want to say this. Um, proximity to failure. There we go. Yeah. Sure. So there's a couple of things I'm going to push back on here. The first is sure. a term stretch mediated hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. So it's not as simple as just stretching and you get hypertrophy, right? Because otherwise you could just like stretch your quads a little bit, not even very hard and you'd mm -hmm. get the benefits, right? In reality, it's more about longer muscle length training hypertrophy. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's a weird distinction. It's a bit pedantic, yeah. I admit, but it's worth making uh, sure. because otherwise you can think, oh, actually, I just need to exist at the longest muscle length muscle length possible and I get the benefit. Right. Um, so what I think is it's more so that longer muscle length training is just more stimulative than shorter muscle length training for hypertrophy. Um, so when you do a full range of motion, let's make it very binary and say you can either be training at longer muscle lengths or shorter muscle lengths. Half the range of motion is performed at shorter muscle lengths, right? So half the time during a full range of motion set may be spent at muscle lengths that aren't very stimulative. Whereas if you're doing partials, all of the time is being spent at longer muscle lengths, uh... which may be more stimulative, right? I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time, and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder, and the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein, and they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings. Peanut butter fluff, uh, fluffernutter, 26 grams of protein, and then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein in is very, very important. So make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! And there's actually some research on this, a study in 2021 by Pedrosa and colleagues, where they compared four training groups. One group's doing full range of motion leg extensions, so all the way down to all the way up. One group doing only the bottom half, one group doing only the top half, and one group doing half of their sets as the bottom half, and half of their sets as the top half. And actually, what you saw is that when trainees performed half of their sets in the bottom half, for example, and half their sets in the top half, they still saw better growth in full range of motion. So it seems like just having some lengthened partials on your program may actually give you hopefully most of the benefit, right? In that study, you still saw that the length and partials group, the group doing only the bottom half, had the best hypertrophy overall. But there was still better hypertrophy just by doing half your training as length and partials. So there is probably like some sort of like, okay, maybe by including 50% length and partials, you get 80% of the benefit, right? But it does seem like with length and partials versus a four range of motion for hypertrophy, it's mostly the effect of spending all or most of your time at longer muscle lengths. Because longer muscle length training is kind of like, you know, it's the good stuff. Whereas if you're doing four-inch motion, you're kind of watering it down a little bit. Uh, okay, so basically it's because you're spending the most time under tension in the most stimulative part of the exercise. Very likely so, yeah. So that's it's kind of pretty well established that longer muscle length training in general is more stimulative than shorter muscle length training per set, for example, right? Um, this is well established across five studies in the isometric training literature, where they compare isometric contractions at shorter or longer muscle lengths. It's well established across about nine studies comparing the same range of motion, the same partial range of motion, for example, 50 degrees of elbow flexion at longer versus shorter average muscle lengths. Mm -hmm. It's very well established in general. And what you see in the effect size is that the worst thing you can do for hypertrophy is shorter muscle length partials. Then likely the second worst thing you can do is four range of motion. And then maybe the best thing you can do 
is latent partials. Now, the ranking of those of those last two, whether four-range motion really is worse than latent partial hypertrophy, I wouldn't put a ton of money on yet. I'd say it's mm-hmm. probable. Um, we have four studies comparing a four-range motion to latent partials, and in those four studies, three of those found a benefit to latent partials for hypertrophy, and one found no difference. So there isn't a single study so far where a four-range motion outdoes latent partials for hypertrophy. Does that mean that it's for sure an open and shut case? No. But at this point, it's been a pretty consistent track record across you know a lot of studies that I've mentioned previously, like the isometric stuff, the partial range of motion to muscle lengths, and this now as well. So it's it's certainly worth some consideration. Okay, so let's kind of take it to a little bit more practical level then. So let's say you're doing like a, a push day. Um, you know, let's say you're doing squats, um, bench press, tricep extensions, and shoulder presses. What would this kind of look like using length and partials for each of these exercises? Sure. So it's interesting, and this kind of crosses over into exercise selection as well, not just mm-hmm. the range of motion stuff. Because, for example, if you compare a cable crossover, well, you get a deep stretch, but you also get a very good peak contraction. That's a four-range of motion chest exercise, right? So you could just do the length and part on that exercise, or if you just wanted to do the length and partial, you could just do a dumbbell chest fly. Because the top part of that range of motion is essentially unloaded, and so it's almost by design a length and partial exercise, even when you do a full range of motion. So certain exercises will be stimulative even if you don't try and do a length and partial. And that also applies to maybe like a cable ladder raise set up the right way. And you can make certain changes to exercises to make them better. But generally, for a push day, for example, I would probably do for the chest some sort of pressing variation, right? So I think with lengthened partials, we can work well, would be a Smith machine press, because you can unrack it in a relatively lengthened position, and then just re-rack it if ever there's an issue, right? That can be a very safe way of setting it up. Um, I think it's a bit safer that way than a barbell press, where it can be difficult to re-rack otherwise. I think dumbbell pressing can work pretty well as well for lengthened partials, but I think Smith machine pressing works extremely well. then for overhead pressing, again, dumbbells work quite well. A Smith machine will work well. A machine works very well as well because you can just kind of let it back down, obviously. Um, and I would say for Smith machine pressing, I would aim for at the top an elbow angle of about 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. So about halfway up usually. And that's kind of in the research, the ranges of motion used for length and partials group are usually about half the full rep. So I think aiming for about half the full rep, maybe like one third to two thirds, whatever you find most consistent, right? Whatever you can make consistently the case week to week without struggling. Um, for overhead pressing, same deal. I'd say about halfway up or about 90 degrees up. And then you could do a chest isolation exercise, like a dumbbell fly would work pretty well. That works doubly well in the sense that A, you can't actually train it at shorter muscle lengths anyways. And B, it places the most tension on your chest and it's the most difficult at the very bottom at those long muscle lengths. That's probably a good thing. Um, and then for triceps, I would say generally, you'll want to prioritize stuff like overhead extensions over say pushdowns. So pushdowns have your arm by your side and your shoulders relatively extended, which means that while the medial and lateral head, they're the same length, whether you do overhead extensions or pushdowns because they don't insert the shoulder, the long head does get more of a stretch in overhead extensions because your arm is overhead. And so I would generally recommend doing overhead extensions over pushdowns. So if you had, for example, let's say four tricep exercises in your program across the week, I would probably make two of those overhead extensions, maybe one a skull crusher and maybe one a pushdown. Um, so a slight bias towards lower muscle lengths for sure. And I would again go up until maybe 90 degrees of elbow extension. Um, and then finally for a uh, squat pattern, I think the Smith machine can come in quite clutch for hypertrophy, right? And ultimately this whole discussion is for hypertrophy. So if you're a powerlifter, probably don't do length and partials only because 
you still have to squat the depth and all the way up. Um, but for hypertrophy, a Smith machine can be a nice tool, again, because it allows you to unrack the bar without uh, needing to do the first part of the range of motion. And if you do a free weight length and partial squat, you either have to start from the safeties at the very bottom, which can be awkward to get into, or you have to re-rack it at the very end, which means you have to finish the last rep with a full range of motion. And that can be quite challenging after a full set of length and partials, right? Um, so that's why I generally prefer either a machine like a hack squat, you can just re-rack it any time, or a Smith machine or something like that. And I think that's probably the best option for the quads. Alongside, actually, for the quads, one exercise that's underrated is the sissy squat, um, especially like without the machine, because the machine doesn't actually let you get quite as deep as just a free weight sissy squat with no equipment. Um, and you can get very long muscle lengths there for all four heads of the quads, even for the rectus femoris, which usually doesn't get that lengthened. And you can also get plenty of tension at the bottom um, because it's essentially like the, the way the exercise works, the moment arm on the quads is largest at the bottom. And so that can be a really good exercise to take advantage of the stretch mediated hypertrophy in brackets. Um, so yeah, that's I'd say how I'd structure a push session in light of all this research. Okay, so then I guess let's kind of move on to a pull session. So let's say, I don't know, maybe like a bicep curl. Um, I don't know what you would think about deadlifts because um, I know people do like rack pulls, but that would be more of like the easier part of the range of motion rather than pulling it off the floor and um, maybe like lat pull downs. Now, the lat pull downs kind of seem interesting to me because, um, you know, obviously you're fully stretched up here, but I mean, it can get it's still pretty difficult the whole way through. So um, what would that look like for more of like a pool day? For sure. The important thing to notice there is that just because a part of the exercise is easier doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the more lengthened part, right? Okay. Um, like there's going to be exercises where the more lengthened part is easier. Like in the pull down, for example, the top part's actually a bit easier than the bottom part. Mm -hmm. So in that case, the length and range likely gets insufficient love during full range of motion sets. And that's probably where length and partials come in especially helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're doing full range of motion lat pull downs and you, you know, you're always going to fail at shorter muscle lengths at the bottom, that's the hardest part of the lift. And so you could do like probably like 10 more reps at the top, right? Um, and certainly in my experience, when I've done length and partials on pull-ups or pull-down variations, mm -hmm. I can certainly use like 20% more weight maybe, thereabouts. So substantially more weight that way. Whereas for certain exercises like RDLs or squats, I can oftentimes use less weight actually, because it's the hardest part of the movement. And by not going all the way up, I'm not allowing myself to rest. And so by rep five or 10, yeah, I'm feeling a burn. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty tired. Um, so for back training, I'd say generally similar exercise selection is going to work. You just want to do the first half of the movement, really emphasize the stretch. Um, for pull downs, I would go again down to about your forehead, maybe thereabouts, and about 90 degrees of elbow flexion. For rows, I would pull to about your knees usually, right? So for dumbbell rows or for barbell rows, I would pull just past your knees and then come back down. Um, not really try and touch your stomach because again, it's the same situation as with pull downs where the most shortened part is the hardest part. So if you do a full range of motion, the lengthened position doesn't get a ton of love usually. And that's probably the most important part for hypertrophy. So I'd say for muscle groups like the back and the side delts and maybe the biceps, that's where the biggest potential for improvement probably comes from. Because when you're doing full range of motion squats or full range of motion benching, the bottom position is quite hard already. So by doing length and partial, you are changing the exercise, but not that much. But by doing length and partials on rows, where usually the length and part is actually quite easy, you're making it the hardest part and seeing a bigger difference. Um, so I'd say I would do some sort of pull down or pull up variation. Uh, I would say uh, an underhand pull down, for example, works pretty well. Then I would do 
some sort of machine or free weight row. Again, just about the knees. For the hamstrings or for deadlift patterns, I definitely think you can apply the length and partial stuff. I would generally recommend an RDL variation over a conventional deadlift or a sumo necessarily, because it's just going to do a better job of training your hamstrings and glutes specifically, um, which is kind of the goal of that. Because otherwise, if you're doing a conventional or a sumo, your hamstrings don't get fully lengthened, right? Because you're shortening them at the knee, but uh, lengthening them at the hip. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They don't change the length that much, whereas an RDL keeps your knees in the fixed position and just makes them lengthen at the hip, right? So you can get nice, deep, long muscle lengths. And because of the moment arms involved, again, you're going to have a lot more tension at the bottom, make it a lot more difficult at the bottom compared to something like conventional, which can usually usually break off the floor pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say an RDL is a pretty good option. And with an RDL, again, if you wanted to do lengthen partials, again, it's one of those movements where it doesn't make a huge difference. But if you wanted to, I would just pull it above your knees. I've certainly done it. I've done it on all exercise at this point. So I kind of have a, a feel of how it feels. Right. Um, and I'd say that for hamstrings and glutes and lower back. And then for biceps, I think the best the best couple options I'd recommend, one is more practical and actually has research on it directly, is a preacher curl. Um, a preacher curl won't stretch your biceps out perfectly because one of the biceps is a shoulder flexor. So actually the long head of the bicep gets more lengthened behind your back. So once you have your arm behind your back, uh, whereas in a preach curl, it's the opposite. But that being said, the hardest part of the preach curl is kind of near the bottom or near the stretch position. So while it's not stretching out your biceps to their absolute maximum length, it is getting a good deal of tension in that position. And so it's good exercise in that sense. So that's the more practical exercise because almost everyone has a preach curl just available. You just grab some dumbbells or a bar and you're ready to go. And I would, again, just go from a full stretch or your elbows being nearly locked out, provided you can handle it. 
um, to halfway up or about 70, 80 degrees of elbow flexion, just before 90 degrees. But then the less practical, potentially better bicep exercise would be setting up a bench in a dual cable station, kind of ahead of it, like some people do for chest flies, and setting it up in front and then setting up the cables at about hand height when you're sitting down on the bench behind you, um, grabbing the handles and then essentially curling up like you would for an incline curl. Mm-hmm. But because the handles will be set up at hand height, the most resistance will be placed in the exercise at the start of the lift, at the most lengthened position. Your arms are behind you, which means the long head of the bicep is more lengthened. Mm-hmm. And finally, you could go all the way up if you want to, but I'd say probably just go about halfway up and then come back down. And that's actually something I'm doing today in my program. Um, and that's a really good bicep exercise. And then finally, for the side and rear delts, the one rear, rear delt exercise I've not really seen used, but I think is really, really good, is using the cables you would use for chest crossovers. Mm-hmm. Take a step forward, uh, set them up at shoulder height, and grab them, but sort of like the other way around, right? So when you're doing, kind of start the lift in a peak contraction for a cable crossover with your arms crossed over your body, mm-hmm. and then pull them across your body to kind of go into the starting position of a chest cable crossover, um, and go about halfway until maybe your arms are directly in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be a really nice way to accentuate the stretch. And if you take a step forward during the exercise as well, you can place the most tension on the rear delts at the very bottom when they get a deep stretch. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's ever tried that has reported back to me saying that A, their rear delts got very sore, and B, that they feel the rear delts stretch for the first time ever, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting exercise. Um, and then finally, for the side delts, I think it's a very simple swap out. Most people do dumbbell ladder raises. If you do cable ladder raises and kind of let the cable come down in front of you a little bit and to the side, you get more of a positional stretch, like your lateral delt actually gets more lengthened anatomically. Mm-hmm. And also there's actual tension there, as opposed to a dumbbell lateral raise where at the bottom right. gravity points down, so there's nothing going on. Um, and you can also set up the cable at hand height, just like for cable curls, so that there's the most resistance being placed on your lateral delts at the very bottom of the rep. And I think that's a pretty complete guide, to be honest. I think that covers you pretty well for the back, the side delts, the biceps, the hamstrings, the glutes. Those are generally the exercises I recommend. Finally, actually, uh, noteworthy mention for the hamstrings is there's been a study going around about the leg curl, right? Where doing the seated leg curl grew the hamstrings that insert the hip more because mm-hmm. your hips are more flexed, which means they're more lengthened compared okay. to the lying leg curl where your hips are more extended. And so your hamstrings that cross the hip are more shortened. So essentially another study showing that longer muscle length training for the hamstrings is also good. So a lot of people took that as saying, okay, well, let me only do seated leg curls for the hamstrings. And that's a good point. And if you want to grow your hamstrings, see the leg curls are good at there. You could even lean forward a little bit to increase the hip flexion and get more of a stretch. Mm. However, there are also other knee flexor muscle groups like the gracilis muscle and the sartorius muscle. And those actually act to flex the hip. So they're the opposite of the hamstrings. And so actually those muscle groups are more length than doing the lying leg curl. And so if you want to grow those, the lying leg curl is a better option. And so you probably want to have some combination of both, mostly seated because the hamstrings are really big and really important but some lying as well. And again, that study is just really compelling evidence saying that, hey, longer muscle length training is really important for a variety of muscle groups, not just one muscle group in isolation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that, that's actually fascinating because I've always felt like the lying leg curls were way, 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 way more difficult than the uh, seated leg curls. But um, that's interesting that the seated ones actually grow the hamstrings more in that respect. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think most people actually find the lying leg curl more comfortable. Like I didn't really do any lying leg curls prior to getting into this lower muscling research and even seeing the study. 
Um, but it is it does seem to be better for the hamstrings, and it makes a lot of sense based on the research we have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now does this kind of disqualify band training almost entirely? Because um, I'm sure you've seen an X3 bar being floated around, and I have one, and I like it. It's just kind of like a tool to get a pretty intense workout in and not a lot of time. Does this essentially like kind of throw a lot of this stuff right out the window? Yeah, well, for hypertrophy, a little bit, yes. However, you have to keep in mind that we're not talking about revolutionary effect sizes here, right? We're not talking about night and day differences in your results. We're talking about differences, and at this point, they seem pretty... They're there, you know, in all likelihood. So we're talking about differences where if you want to optimize your muscle growth, this is something you'd be well off doing. However, if you're just someone who wants to get a muscle growth response and you don't have any equipment, bands are still a lot better than doing nothing, you know? Um... And so I'd say if you have access to other equipment, I would generally, for hypertrophy, prefer doing these exercises I mentioned over anything banded because banded exercises will basically always remove tension in lengthened position and add tension in the shortened position, which is the opposite of what we want for hypertrophy. But they can still be a good tool for, A, if you don't have access to anything, uh, like any other equipment, or resistance, because you still won't have enough resistance in the exercise to make it stimulating, or if you're training for strength or for power outcomes, for example, they can work quite well. But for hypertrophy specifically, at this point, unless someone has an injury and only feels they can train around it with bands, for example, I would generally steer away from it for sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually insanely interesting because uh, a, a lot of the research that um, <laughs> the gentleman who invented the X3 kind of came out with was saying, oh, you can get three times the gains because you're getting more weight at the, you're getting more weight overall, but, um, you know, as I kind of listen to more and more people who were obviously much more knowledgeable, they kind of said, well, you know, you want to be once again, the most weight in the most lengthened position. Dude, as a good rule of thumb, if someone gives you an exact figure on on how much something will explode your gains, Mm -hmm. don't take them (laughs) as a good source of information. Like I'm not telling you it's going to quadruple your gains. I might, you know, I think it's, if anything, going to make a relatively small difference. Mm. And I think that's where that's kind of where gurus and charlatans, uh, how you can identif- identify them is if they're promising that their one modality will revolutionize your training. I'm not claiming it will. I'm saying the evidence says it probably will add something to your training, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be this night and day difference. Like, uh, you know, this is why Ronnie Coleman became <laughs> eight times Mr. Olympia, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I generally tell people whenever we're talking about like nutrition or training stuff, I'm like, anytime you see somebody saying like, this is killing your gains, this is killing you, avoid this, you know, this is ruining your diet, this one diet hack, I'm like, generally, you can say no, next, like, keep going. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's this fun thing as well, where for a lot of exercises, like squats and bench, and a lot of compound free weight basics, those exercises already place a good deal of tension in length position. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably why people won't see a huge effect from going um, into length and partials. But there will be people who have been avoiding the stress position or want to optimize their muscle growth. And that's where I think the longer muscle length partials are beneficial because mm-hmm. they will likely have a bit of an edge, add a bit of an edge to your training in terms of hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when it comes to kind of moving into this, would you recommend somebody kind of like deloads and then reduces their overall volume pretty significantly just so that way they can kind of like feel this out and kind of move into it? Yeah, so what I'd probably do is I wouldn't necessarily have them deload first, but I would gradually incorporate them. Um, I think that if someone's been doing full range of motion training, 
like a you know a pretty full range of motion in their training, they have already been exposed to those positions pretty consistently. So it's not like we need to, you know, spend a year building up to it. Um, so I think generally you can take about four to eight weeks total. Let's say you want to go all the way and do only lengthened partials, which I've essentially been doing for about five months now, actually, um, except for some powerlifting style training that I've been enjoying. Like besides actually doing the squat bench deadlift, all of my training has been linked in partials, like all of my accessories and everything. Hmm. Um, and if you wanted to do that and go all length and partials and you've been doing full range of motion, I'd say about four to six to maybe eight weeks is sufficient to do the switch. Mm-hmm. I would, for the first couple of weeks, maybe do about, you know, change a few exercises from full range of motion to length and partials, then change a few more and then change a few more. Um, there is the potential that switching all of your workload in your program from being at, across a variety of joint angles to just being at a few joint angles might take some acclimation. You know, your joints just need to get used to it. And so you probably don't want to make the switch right away. But I think, you know, people do a lot of dumb shit and don't get injured. Um, so as long as you're not making the switch right away, I think you'll be fine. Okay, so then what are your thoughts surrounding like joint health? Because this seems to be like a platitude that gets passed around a lot. Do you think it's BS or like I, I, I was listening to somebody the other day and I think they said like a lot of the studies surrounding joint health were BS or there was like one study done on this. Um, could you elaborate on that? First of all, I like to use the word platitude because I think not many people use it in the context of the fitness industry and it's incredible how many platitudes are out there, both in terms of like motivational shit and like in terms of just uh, the amount of ideas that get bandied around, like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, you need to control the eccentric a lot, a lot. And the research on the other hand is like, actually, as long as you have an eccentric in your training, it doesn't need to be eight seconds long, you know, mm-hmm. it's just some an idea that people like to say, you're like, oh, uh, it's not about quality, it's about quantity or the word execution. It's like, what do you mean by that? You're just saying it because everyone else says it, you know? Um, so I think that with joint health, the important thing to keep in mind is that we don't have any, like, we don't have studies looking at a full range of motion versus partial range of motion and trying to injure people. Like, we don't have measuring that at all. Um, what we have is somewhat of an understanding from physiotherapy and stuff on what co- seems to potentially contribute to pain development and or injury. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we don't have the data to say that a full range of motion is inherently less injurious or more injurious than a partial range of motion. The one piece of data I have seen is that in people with existing pain, like for example, lower back pain, it does seem to be the case that training at either extreme of the range of motion, like at super short muscle lengths, like the lockout um, versus, or super long muscle lengths, like the peak stretch, right? The full, full stretch. It seems like training at those muscle lengths might increase pain a little bit. And so if you're someone with existing pain and you try it out and you find that, oh, actually training at super long muscle lengths causes me pain, then yeah, maybe don't, you know? Um, but there's no data to suggest that it will be inherently more injurious. The best data we have is like cross-sectional data where we've measured injury rates very loosely defined in the strength sports. And that doesn't really tell us anything about whether a full range of motion is better or worse. Because in fact, like in powerlifting, for example, you could argue that for most lifters in the squat and deadlift, for example, they're getting a pretty long range of motion. Um, so it's difficult to say. I certainly think that pain and injury are relatively complex things mm-hmm. and that the worst thing we can do as science communicators or whatever you want to call yourself is try to set up fear-mongering about a certain training strategy, right? Like if, if there is genuinely evidence to say that actually partial range of motion will make you snap your shit, first of all, there isn't, but if there were, 
Um, that's warranted to say that, hey, maybe don't do this or what have you or consider it. But in this case, there isn't. And until there is, I think setting up the belief for people that doing partials will cause you pain, will cause you injury, is probably going to cause pain and injury. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement pretty much in your entire body. and let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee, so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut, and uh, mix that all up. It tastes really, really good. So, uh, yeah, make sure you drop by, go to drinklmnt.com slash health and uh, pick you up some electrolytes today. All right, guys, thanks. Because beliefs are one, and contextual factors in pain development are one huge thing, right? The, the beliefs of a patient around what causes pain, how how their pain is in nature, whether it's long-term or not, how difficult it is to treat, whether they see their body as fragile versus robust and adaptable, those things really influence pain. So the last thing I want to do now is give people some nocebo effects and tell them, hey, actually, it's going to cause pain or it's more injurious. When in reality, there's no evidence to suggest it is, and me saying that will make them more likely to get injured. So for the time being, no reason to think it'll be more injurious, no reason to think it's worse for joint health. In fact, lifting in general is very good for joint health. So keep lifting. That's about the most nuanced message I can give her, you know? <laughs> you know, I, I, I like that message. I think most of the audience will too. Um, yeah, I to, to that point, you see this a lot in like just the nutrition sphere in general is that, um, you know, seed oils are killing you, chickens killing you, <clears throat> name, insert food here, the uh, artificial sweeteners are destroying your gut. Um, <clears throat> it really enlightened me when I read the statistic on like eating disorders and um, that I think it's like one in five people who have an eating disorder will die from that eating disorder. That kind of made me realize like, oh, I should, you know, we need to be very, very careful with how we talk about nutrition stuff. Because as soon as you start getting into this like black and white and, you know, good, bad morality deal, I mean, that could really fuck some people up. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think especially with mental health stuff or it's just you don't want to be making absolute statements or demonizing things especially in nutrition because there is actually like a lot of mental health uh, stuff associated with nutrition right for a lot of, because everyone eats and you can develop disorders around eating even if you don't develop an actual disorder you can have disordered eating or you can have uh, body image issues or what have you so the last thing you want to do is create either demonize certain stances or certain foods or certain training approaches and i think honestly it's a relatively easy way to separate the wheat from the chaff in the industry. If someone gives absolute statements or tries to demonize something, as opposed to just saying, this may be more effective, they're either trying to sell you something, they're not very good science communicators, or they're just straight up charlatans. Like, for example, I don't know, uh, Liver King, you know, where it's like, oh, if you eat vegetables, <laughs> it's uh, your low test, bro, low test. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. that's a good rule of thumb uh, on who to follow and who not to follow here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you're saying if you eat 
bull testicles and do partial range of motion, you're not going to get more gains than the plant-based guy hey. at the road. <laughs> I mean, hey, I, I'm saying that. You feel me? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I know this might be a little bit difficult to answer here, but uh, we're kind of coming up to the end. Um, if you had to put like a number on – how do I want to phrase this? How significant do you think the research on your research in particular on partials is going to be in terms of getting people more jacked? Um, that, that's it, it seems pretty interesting. And like I said, you're challenging the orthodoxy. So, you know, eventually I think people are going to be like, oh, come on, man. Is this going to like make me look like Ronnie Coleman or not? <laughs> sure. Yeah, for sure. So let's assume that for any given year of training, you can get 100 gains, right? Or 100% of your potential gains. Um, I think if you're using the quote-unquote wrong range of motion, which in this case for hypertrophy, I would define as shortened only training or shortened partials, I think that could take you down to maybe 85%, 90%, right? So a pretty notable difference. So I think shortened partials and exclusively doing shortened work, this is the one thing I'd stay away from for hypertrophy, and I think it makes a pretty notable difference. If you're doing a full range of motion, I think you're probably getting closer to maybe... 90 to 95, maybe even a bit more, right? I think you're in a pretty good spot. So I think the difference between, say, doing a full range of motion and doing lengthened partials out of 100 may only be between three and eight points or thereabouts, right? Maybe even a bit less. So if you look at the effect sizes in the um, meta-analysis, for example, the percentage differences between the approaches seem to roughly correspond to that. So I think that's a good estimate to give. And the thing with that is in any individual, if they change from full range of motion to length and partials, that's too small of a difference to be able to tell. Like if if you somehow try and measure your hypertrophy, whether it's like by checking pictures or what have you, because that's a relatively small impact compared to like, did you eat on a surplus? Are you taking PDs now? Um, or a variety, did you manage stress better? Did you sleep better? In any given training year, let's say that adds 5%, right? Length and partials versus uh, four-inch motion. All of those things in terms of impact will overshadow that considerably, right? Yeah. And so in, it's very difficult to ascertain when it comes to your own training whether it's working for you. And that's where evidence is helpful because it will give you more, more confidence in saying, this is very likely to work for me because for the average person, it does seem to work. And in all likelihood, you're not that different from the average person. Um, so... I think it's a relatively small difference. I think it can be difficult to tell when you only look at yourself. Like for example, I can't tell really if I've grown, I think, I like to think I have, I like to think I've grown more now doing length and partials than previously doing four range of motion. But in reality, I can't really tell. Um, but I do think it makes a notable difference for those of us trying to get maximally jacked. Okay. And ultimately, quick note, yeah. it's super easy. Like I think it takes a bit of, um, as you said, it's a bit of an orthodoxy, so I think a lot of people are still reluctant to even consider the switch from four range of motion to like partials. But ultimately, we're talking about doing a different range of motion while you're in the gym. You're already going to be in the gym. You're already going to do those sets. All you're doing is just using a different range of motion. The duration of your sets doesn't change. You're still in gym for the same time. The effort doesn't really change. So I think it's a relatively small change. It might be meaningful to you if you're trying to optimize hypertrophy. And there's relatively low downside. So it's worth considering, at least in my eyes. Okay, so basically, it, it kind of seems, and you could tell me if this is a bad comparison, but the difference between maybe eating like five meals a day of protein versus three, it's not going to be significant, but you're going to get something. And depending on who you are, that something could be a lot, and that something could be nothing. 
For sure. That's a very good analogy, I'd say, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I really, really enjoyed this talk, and I think um, maybe next Mesocycle cycle for me, I may have to start incorporating uh, some of this stuff. Um, now, I'm, I, I think you sold me on it. And, uh, no, no, shoot. Hey, another one joins the ranks, you feel me? <laughs> I'm going to start my course now. I'm going to make everyone pay $1,000 each. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, yeah, you have to sprinkle on some bull testicles with like some red mineral salt, then we can go. <laughs> and some supplements, yeah, and some supplements. Yeah, nice. Uh, Milo, where can everybody find your work and what you're up to? Sure. So you can find me at Wolf Coach on Instagram. So that's my last name, Wolf and Coach. Um, my work you can find on ResearchGate. So if you just type in ResearchGate Milo Wolf on Google, you'll find me. And then finally, for my website, WolfCoaching.net. And that's about it. That's all I needed to plug. Awesome. Um, and you said you're submitting a paper right now? I'm submitting, well, I'm not submitting a paper. I'm oh. finishing my thesis. Oh, apologies. Uh, and hopefully, no, no worries. And I'll hopefully be submitting that by the end of the month. And then I'll be a doctor, hopefully, um, which is nice. And then I'll be submitting several papers over the next six months. So there'll be a lot of stuff coming out, both on range of motion and on other topics too. Awesome. Well, I really look forward to uh, reading that. And then maybe uh, once you get a few of those studies back on um, out there, I'll uh, have you back on. We'll have to uh, discuss them because uh, this is uh, pretty fascinating to me. For sure, man. I'd be happy to. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, everybody, make sure you like, subscribe, and share. Go check out Milo's stuff and all the podcasts he's been on because it's been very, very informative. And uh, I know I'm going to have to listen to this one again. So <laughs> for next Mesocycle, I can figure out what I'm doing. All right. So yeah, man, if you don't got anything else, we'll close her out. That's it. Thanks for having me. Cool. Of course. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.